Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside. And before anything else this morning, let me just take a quick uh, second and look back at last weekend and to celebrate one more time how great it was for us to gather. A whole lot of people showed up to celebrate Steve and Becky's faithfulness in ministry over the course of 35 years. I know I've been hearing all week from people who were here for that celebration and uh, just had a ton of fun at it. And then, and then really through that celebration, to channel that into giving God glory for the ways that he's worked in Steve and Becky and, and through Steve and Becky over the course of their ministry because, because everyone here... And then, hope, and then surely a whole lot of people that, that aren't here this morning too, but, but everyone here either directly or indirectly have benefited from Steve and Becky and their faithfulness. So, so that was great. If, if for some reason you weren't here last weekend for whatever reason, let me encourage you to check it out online. You can find out a whole, you can find a whole bunch of the service there. Uh, and then also check out upstairs. There are some displays that we've got in our upper lobby, our upper hallway. There's uh, this picture display of the history of Brookside over the course of the last 35 years that you may want to see. Uh, there's a display of Steve's 755 sermons that he's preached over the course of 35 years of ministry and more. And, and every time I turn the corner and kind of pass those displays this week, I was always tempted to find the passage I'm preaching on this morning and to start taking screenshots of it, you know, just to get a good head start that way. But then I figured it might be a little too awkward if I'm like here taking screenshots of Steve's sermons and Steve comes walking around the corner. It's like, hey, Steve, what's up? You know, sort of thing. So alas, I didn't. Um, but so this morning, like Jeff said, we are picking back up with the Dear Church series that we've been in. We're actually finishing out the series this week. The, this series where we have been seeing how the Apostle Paul has been speaking to and strengthening and encouraging churches that he was in relationship with in the first century. And, and earlier this week I was reflecting back on all the ground that we've covered over the course of the series. And it was just cool to see everything we've learned and all the insight we've gotten that's good for us as a church as well. So, so if you remember we've looked at keeping the gospel front and center. We've looked at the spiritual disciplines and, and about how love matters most. We've looked at topics like hope, what Christian hope is, and true worship. And these things are all so important for us as individuals and for us as a church. So if you missed any of these, let me just point you one more time back to our website, to the media page or the messages page there where you can get caught up. Because the place we're going this morning as we finish out this series is Paul's first letter to a guy named Timothy. Now, we've been talking a lot about Paul in this series. So you may remember that Paul is, is that guy who started out as a persecutor of the church. I mean, he was against Jesus Christ and his followers in some very serious ways. But then Paul meets Jesus, and Paul follows Jesus, and Paul actually becomes one of the strongest advocates for early Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century. I mean, Paul is a missionary machine. He spends himself for the cause of the gospel and to make other people know the name of Jesus Christ. But if you don't know who Timothy is, the guy that Paul is writing this letter to, Timothy is someone that Paul met on one of his missionary journeys while Paul was traveling around. And there was quick rapport between Paul and Timothy. I mean, you can just imagine this, this ministry veteran of Paul, seasoned ministry veteran with years 
of experience behind him, coming alongside in a very mentoring sort of relationship, coming alongside Timothy, this young leader. And then Paul providing instruction and encouragement and challenge and coaching. And then Paul and Timothy become these, these partners for ministry as Timothy then joins Paul on his missionary journeys. And Paul ends up writing two letters to Timothy that we have in our New Testaments to, to help Timothy lead the church where Timothy was serving in Ephesus. And so, so even though these letters, First and Second Timothy, even though these letters are personal letters, both of these letters have the church as their primary concern. I mean, check it out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul shows us his hand very clearly and says, here's why I'm writing, Timothy. He says, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Paul's concern is the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so it's clear the reason Paul is writing this letter to Timothy is to help Timothy help the church. And then as Paul writes to Timothy about the church, a lot of the things he brings up are, 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 are great. All the things he brings up are great. Things like, like the grace of Jesus Christ and church worship and church leadership and caring for the poor. All of these are important, but, but most of those don't, at least for me, don't catch me by surprise, right? I mean, they're kind of the things that you might expect when you're writing to a young leader about the church. We don't want to look over, overlook any of it, but it doesn't maybe catch us by surprise. But what, what does catch us by surprise, or at least what catches me by surprise, is the way Paul ends the letter, where he goes at the end. So after talking about things like church leadership and church worship and the grace of Jesus Christ and caring for the poor, after talking about all of those healthy ingredients for local church ministry, Paul talks about money. I mean, yeah, Paul goes there. He talks about that. Even more specifically, Paul talks about money and contentment is the thing he brings up. And so as Paul writes to Timothy about what a healthy church is supposed to look like, at this very short list of essential ingredients for a flourishing, growing, healthy, Jesus-honoring church, this short list of things Paul mentions, he includes money. And if Paul includes money and contentment in the short list of things that he brings up, then, then, then Brookside, as we sit under Scripture's authority ourselves, and as we follow Scripture's lead for our lives, then we need to pay attention as well. We want to listen in, because what, what Paul says here to Timothy is for us today, now. So let's dig in. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6 is where we're going. And in the first part of 1 Timothy 6, Paul is talking about these false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And some of these false teachers, what they say sounds kind of like godliness. But, but Paul knows that even though some of the things may, maybe sound a little bit kind of like that, if you look at it through a certain lens, he says, no, these are false teachers. And their driver, their motivation isn't godliness. Their motivation is greed. And so in the face of this sort of greed that the church that Timothy is serving in, in the face of this sort of greed that they're faced with, Paul writes 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, 
No, greed shouldn't be our driver. Contentment should be. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. So to those who thought that true riches were a big bank account, more zeros at the end of a paycheck, Paul says, no, no, that is not it. True gain, real gain, great gain is godliness with contentment. So Paul redirects us away from zeros at the end of our paycheck. And he says, true gain is contentment. It's seeing the blessings that you have. It's wanting what you have. Which, by the way, is a great definition of contentment. Wanting what you have. It's almost as as if Paul is saying, if you want to invest in contentment, if you want to be truly rich, then invest in contentment, right? I mean, to be truly rich, if you want true gain, if you want great gain, to be truly rich, then invest in contentment. Don't pour yourself into getting more and more and more stuff. If you want to be truly rich, pour yourself into discovering and finding and growing in contentment. And I was laughing earlier this week as I prepped for this because the Sunday after Halloween maybe isn't the best time to be having a message on contentment. Because just last Monday, I was the dad who was encouraging my kids who were like, Dad, our feet are tired. I'm like, guys, keep going, right? I mean, there are more lights down the street. We can move this full-size Twix that you've got in your candy bucket. We can, we can kind of rearrange that popcorn ball, get rid of some of those air pockets. There's more lights on. There's plenty of room in your bucket. Keep going, you know? So, so I, was, I was that dad. Or, or I was talking with a guy here on Tuesday morning. That's part of our Tuesday morning men's groups that meet here. And he said that he had a kid show up at his place after 8 p.m. on Monday night. So, uh, so after a lot of the crowds had thinned out, lots of the younger kids had probably gone home, were in bed or getting in bed. But one kid shows up at his house at 8.15 or 8.30 or whatever. And uh, he gets his piece or two of candy from this, from this Brookside. And then, and then this kid kind of looks over his shoulder looks around a little bit, sees that the crowds have thinned out, and, he's, and he asks, so you think anyone else is going to come? And you know what he's asking, right? <laughs> he's like, why don't I just hold my pillowcase open while you pour the rest of your bucket in here? And by the way, what other reserves do you have in the house that you want to put in here too? I mean, uh, I have yet to have one of my kids go to a house where they're given two or three pieces of candy or offered a handful of candy, and for one of my boys to say, no, I'm good with just one. You, you see, Halloween just creates this desire for more. And then as, as funny or as, as lighthearted as those sorts of stories can be, because we can all relate, right? We all chuckle at that. We also know there is a much more serious side to this incessant, perpetual desire for more too. Because because we live in a society that is driven, driven by a desire to consume, to have a bigger house and more stuff and a larger paycheck. Then once you hit that benchmark, you, you aren't satisfied, right? Then it's just like, okay, what's the next bigger house, more paycheck, more stuff? Hit that benchmark, okay, what is it after that? Bigger house, larger paycheck, more stuff. We live in a society that is driven 
by a desire to consume for more. We're bombarded online by ads that have these algorithms behind them that tell me what I want when I'm online even before I know that I want it, right? There, there's this label, compulsive buying disorder, that is actually a thing that certain counselors and psychologists are trained in to come alongside people who are so driven by materialism and image that these people cannot help themselves from clicking purchase again and again and again, right? We can spend all of our time that we want window shopping online to, to realize what we don't have, but maybe we want it. I don't even need to, to read off any stats because of how much this desire to consume is common knowledge for everyone here. We know we're surrounded by things that are designed to fuel our discontent. And some of you here, you, you know that you are filled with feelings of discontent. I mean, if we could sit down, not in a setting like this, but if we could sit down one-on-one -on -one over coffee or over a meal, you, you would say, Tim... Tim, I am driven by discontent. It, it fills me every day. You, you would say that when you're stopped at a red light, the thing your mind drifts to is the thing you want but don't have. When you're interacting with other people, either on social media or in existing relationships at work, in your neighborhood, extended family, you are always comparing yourself to them. And you are always so aware of what they seem to have that you don't. Some of us here are consumed by discontent. And the thing is, I have yet to talk with anyone, anyone who is content with being discontent. I mean, nobody wants to live that way. No one wants to be owned by their stuff. No one wants to be owned by this perpetual desire for more and more and more. No one wants to be a slave to their impulses. That's addiction, right? No one wants to be in that spot where you're a slave to something else, something like materialism and stuff and more. Everyone I talk with values contentment. We want it. We just don't know how to get it. And that's where 1 Timothy 6 comes in so powerfully and so practically. Where, where, where Paul tells Timothy and where Paul tells us, okay, you want to invest in contentment? Here's how. Then he gives us two ways that we can invest in contentment. We invest in contentment by pursuing the right goals and by practicing the right habits. Pursuing the right goals. Let's start at the top there with that one. Let's talk about investing in contentment by looking at the goals that we have before us. What does it mean to pursue the right goals? Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. I'll start in verse 6 and read a few verses from there. I encourage you to follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles with me. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And so, so here Paul is just showing us again what contentment is and why it's valuable. Contentment 
isn't keeping up with the Joneses. Again, it's wanting what we have. It's understanding what the basics of life are, right? Hey, we've got food and clothing. There's people around the world that don't have that. We need to find ways to be content with the basics of life that we have. And then everything else on top of that is blessings that can be enjoyed and we should be grateful for. But it is not something that we are entitled to. So we understand what the basics are. And then then Paul says this way of living, finding contentment, is great gain, is the words that he uses. It is the best way to live. Contentment and living contentedly with a smaller house or an older car or whatever it is. But being content in that situation, that is better than being driven by discontent. So contentment doesn't make your life smaller. It doesn't make things worse. It's the best way to live. And then in verse 9, Paul starts to get very specific on how investing in contentment means pursuing the right goals. And he first contrasts the right goals with the wrong set of goals that might consume us instead, that can consume us instead if we're not careful. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Paul says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here Paul is talking about people who are driven by greed, by money and materialism. It's the thing they think about when they get up in the morning. It's the thing they think about when they put their head on the pillow at night. Greed drives them. Just look at the words that Paul uses here. He says, those who want to get rich, we know what their driver is, what their motivation is, right? Their desires are captured by money and materialism. They love money, right? Money is on the seat, on the throne of their life. They're eager for money. All of these words and all these phrases combine to reinforce beyond a shadow of a doubt that the motivation for these people, the goal that is driving them is stuff, is greed, is materialism, is things, is keeping up with the Joneses. And then the thing that we cannot miss as we look back at these phrases is that any of these phrases, any of these phrases can be just as true of people who are struggling to make ends meet as they can be of people who have tremendous wealth. You see, it's not just wealthy people who can be consumed by greed. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you're swimming to debt, swimming in debt, but if you want to get rich, if your desires are captured by money, if you love money, if you're eager for money, this stuff is just as true of you struggling to make ends meet as it can be true of people who have lots of zeros at the end of every paycheck. And then the thing that we also don't want to miss about about this passage is look where it leads. Paul's warnings that he gives about people like this are very, very serious. 
right? It's a trap. I mean, just picture this bear that's caught in a snare, just writhing in pain. That's what this is, or it's almost hunting season, right? I mean, imagine you're up on a tree stand, guys, and imagine you've got this, this, this deer in your sights, right? That deer has no idea of the threat that it's in, but that threat is real. I mean, so, so wealth, I mean, greed, excuse me, greed is a trap. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. Some people have wandered from the faith. They, they pierced themselves with many griefs. More money won't solve your problems. Talk with the extremely wealthy people, and they say more money often multiplies their griefs. And so if greed and if straight-up materialism can't be the goal that we pursue, what should we be pursuing? Paul tells us right away in verse 11. So we, we've, we've been reading verses six, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Right away in verse 11, Paul says, no, don't be pursuing those things. Here's what you should be pursuing instead. But you, man of God, Paul says, flee from all this. That all this that Paul is talking about there, that's the greed. That's the materialism that we just saw. And instead, here's what your goal should be. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And so, so Paul says the best way to unseat greed from the primary place in your life isn't to close your eyes, clench your fists, and think really hard about not being greedy. The best way to unseat greed from any sort of priority determining the goals of your life is to say, no, pursue better desires. Pursue something else. Replace that desire for greed with a desire for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Right? Find a better goal. Pursue better desires. Right? These desires that will make us into the people that we want to be around and that other people want to be around. Because as we grow in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, we will be people who send ripples out in our world that need to see people characterized by those sorts of virtues. That is the goal we should be pursuing. It's practically like Paul is saying, set your sights on Jesus, the one who perfectly models these things, and then Jesus, the one through whom we can actually have our desires changed, so we want those things, righteousness, godliness, and so on. Just this last week, my Twitter feed pointed me in a direction of an article that was so great on this point of just pursuing the right goals and thinking about that. The article was on neuroscience and learning, but, but, the, but the line that's so perfect for our time now here is this. Listen to this. It just said, be mindful of what you're mindful of. I love that. Be mindful of what you're mindful of. The article is saying that the things that we choose to focus on will increasingly characterize us. So if we increasingly and only focus on money and things and stuff and toys, we've seen where that leads. We don't want to be those sorts of people. 
But if we focus on righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, that makes us into people who are characterized by all of those things. Let's be that sort of people. It's basically you are what you eat, right? Applied to virtue and focus that way. And this isn't just some power of positive thinking thing either. Life with Jesus, it actually changes our desires. So that way as we find Jesus and as we follow Jesus, the work he does in us from the inside out changes the things we want. So that way we want the things that honor Jesus. We want the things that will bring him glory. Things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and more. And so as we pursue these right goals, a greedy drive for money, we, we starve it is what we do. We starve it out by nourishing the right virtues that Jesus wants to see built in us through his transforming grace powerfully at work in us and through us. So in addition to pursuing the right goals, right, so that's, that's thing number one we're talking about. In addition to pursuing the right goals, as we invest in contentment, we also practice the right habits. Look with me here. Down a few verses at 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Where Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world. Which, just so we're clear, is all of us here. Right? Because if you compare yourself, not just with people around the block, but if you compare yourself with people around the globe, we are all rich. But so command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then verse 18, Paul gets really practical. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves, in, uh, treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This passage is incredibly important. Soak in it later on today and throughout the week. There's, there's a lot here. I just don't have time to get through. But, but where I want to put our focus very narrowly right now is on verse 18, where we find two distinct habits that we want to be practicing and pursuing and growing in as we invest in contentment. The two habits are that we're to be rich in good deeds and we're to give financially. Both of these are important, right? Being rich in good deeds and giving financially. This isn't some sort of either or, choose the one you most resonate with sort of application. Both of these are important. If we want to invest in contentment and grow in contentment, the way we do that is by showing good deeds and being financially generous. So let's look at each of those. Let's look first at, at being rich in good deeds. Paul's play on words here in this verse is very intentional. Where it's almost like Paul is saying, so you want to be rich? Okay, here's how. Be rich in good deeds. To get really tactical, this means that we do not spend 80 hours a week pursuing some almighty dollar, and then everything else 
gets left in the, in the rearview mirror, right? Everything else gets left out. Relationships, other important values that we have get neglected because we're pursuing money. No, we don't do that. Instead, being rich in good deeds means that we go out of our way, inconveniently and even at cost to ourselves, to show good deeds to others and be known for sacrificial, personally invested serving of them. That's what being rich in good deeds means. It means that we're more known for the good deeds we do, for the things that we add to people's life. We're more known for that than the car in our driveway and the toys that we have. So the, the question that flows very naturally out of this point is, how can I be rich in good deeds this week? And then, and then even more than that, I, I wrote this question, but, but I'm going to say it even stronger here, right? How can I start habits in my life that will get me being rich in good deeds as I move onward, as I move into the future. So this isn't just like, oh, check that off, now I can move into something else. No, what are the habits I can start this week so I am consistently being rich in good deeds? And then, and then the, the second habit to practice is that we show financial generosity. And the place this starts is with the tithe, with giving 10% of what God has given us back to God. Because it is true that the only antidote to materialism is giving. Did you hear that? The only antidote to materialism. If we want to unseat the hold that materialism has on our lives, if we want to unseat that, the antidote is giving. If we're going to invest in contentment, we have to give back from and be generous with what God has given us. Because we will never grow in contentment if we're tight-fisted with and anxious about the things that God has first given to me and to you and to us. So here's the question for this habit. What step, what, what, what practical step will I take to show financial generosity and grow in financial generosity? And then the great thing, the great thing, Brookside, I mean, one of the reasons I love this church so much is because of how you are already doing both of those things so well. I love the stories I can tell with people about, about how we are showing good deeds as a church about how there are those stories of sacrificial financial generosity that others have made happen, right? I mean, I was just thinking this last week, spent five minutes brainstorming ideas, came up with a great starter list of ways you already do these things. More and more of you are signing up, for, uh, signing up as foster and adoptive parents. Go Team's interest has been off the charts as people look ahead to 2017 trips. Just this weekend, we had a team of people leave to go serve Jesus in the Dominican Republic. Brookside Middle Schoolers and the Mama Bunch, they donated a bunch of items to Project Harmony to go serve kids in the foster care system. Every week, we've got dozens of high school students that are neck deep in service in our kids' ministry and in other places of ministry around the building. Just a few years ago, some of you may still remember this, we did this thing called the Pave the Way campaign, where so many of you gave sacrificially and joyfully and generously so we could burn the mortgage on this facility. Right now, right now, this week, 
kids in our children's ministry are giving of their own money. So that way they can send that to our ministry partner in the DR. In our For the City initiative, more than 320 families are, 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 are in the game giving, right? We've got almost three quarters of a million dollars cash in hand towards the 2.3 million pledged but almost three quarters of a million dollars cash in hand to go do good for Jesus in the city. That's great. That's awesome. Keep on. Stay the course, right? And the thing I want to call us to is to say, let's do that still more. I want to invite more of you to get in the game. I want to invite all of us to notch up the way we're engaged in this way. I want us to be so known for giving joyfully and sacrificially and lavishly and counterintuitively that people just say, what would make a church do that? And we say it's because we found contentment first in Jesus, right? But we don't need to look to things to define us. But because of that, because of the contentment we've found, we can think big, right? Not small. Because those questions we asked, right? How can I show good deeds? How can I show generosity? I don't want us to think about answering those in timid, small ways. I want us to think about answering those questions in big, bold, God-dependent, let's, let's move the kingdom of Jesus Christ into our city sort of ways. Let's think bigger, not smaller, about what we can do to show good deeds and to be generous with the blessings that have come from God to us. Now we can serve as a channel to give those to others, right? That's the way that I want us to think. Think about the imprint we can leave on our city as we do this. Think about the ways we can help people find and follow Jesus as we show good deeds. And as we show generosity, then inviting them to see the reason we do that. Because Jesus Christ has changed us. And so we are eager and willing to very contentedly show good deeds and be financially generous. And then the promise that we hang on to, the, the, the promise that we experience is what we've seen here in 1 Timothy 6. That this way of living, living with contentment, by pursuing the right goals and practicing the right habits, this is great gain. It really is the best way to live. If you try it, you'll experience. Try it out. See, see how you feel when you unseat materialism as the greatest good in your life. And you say, oh, may, maybe living that way, maybe investing in contentment by pursuing the right goals and practicing these habits of good deeds and generosity. Maybe that really is great gain. That's the promise that God's word holds out to us, that we would then experience the life that is truly life, is the way Paul ends this passage to Timothy. So to be truly rich, let's invest in contentment. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we... <laughs> We even call ourselves back now to the, to the truth that you are yourself a giver. You have given your son, Jesus, for us. And so, Jesus, may the gifts we've been given and may the, the truth that you are a giver, may they prompt 
our own very eager response of giving ourselves, giving, uh, giving in good deeds and giving financially, Jesus. And then, Father, as we do that, e- even as people today maybe take steps for the first time to do these things, Father, I pray that through your work in our hearts that you would fill us with contentment in fresh ways, that we would see that godliness with contentment really is great gain and the best way to live. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.